This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of September 19th, 2022, here are some top stories. Wildfires are growing more frequent and severe, and wildfire season has lengthened by almost three months since the late 1970s. Experts say it's time to think beyond battling these inevitable blazes and find a way to live with them. Nicholas Gerbis reports. We know how to do things much, much better. We know how to reduce risks to homes and neighborhoods and, in effect, create communities better adapted to increasing wildfire risks. Kimmy Barrett is a wildfire and policy analyst with Headwaters Economics in Bozeman, Montana. She says wildfires play a vital ecological role, yet people see them as disasters when they affect communities. They're a process our landscapes have adapted to over millennia, and so they are supposed to be there. (laughs) Experts can't always predict when wildfires will occur, but where is another matter. Oregon State University civil engineer Erica Fisher. These wildfires are predictable. The areas in which they burn, it's usually the same areas over and over and over again. And yet people keep building communities in the Wildland Urban Interface, or WUI. In fact, the WUI is the fastest growing land use type in the lower 48 states, with more than one in three homes now located in these wildfire-prone landscapes. Wildfires have destroyed 120,000 buildings in the U.S. since 2005, yet thanks in part to expedited planning procedures, construction in burned areas has grown more than 60 percent over the past two decades. Once built, those structures only add to the potential danger and damage. Wildfire is one of the only hazards where the burning of homes itself intensifies the hazard. Houses supply fires with abundant fuel that burns longer than vegetation and can create floating firebrands that ignite distant buildings. What's more, the resulting smoke holds perhaps hundreds of potentially toxic compounds. Fernando Rosario Ortiz is an environmental engineer at University of Colorado Boulder. We're not talking about TVs and refrigerators and dishwashers and all of that. And we are starting to be more and more concerned with contamination. Plastic service pipes buried in fire-heated ground can leach carcinogenic benzene into water systems. Farther afield, noxious substances can deposit across the watersheds that feed two-thirds of U.S. cities. These are the same areas that are prone to fires, and these fires can abruptly and adversely impact these watersheds. And the effects can be quite complex and long-lasting. Up to five to ten years. As rains fall on slopes destabilized by fire, they wash ash, nutrients, metals, and organic carbon into rivers and reservoirs. The ensuing changes in water chemistry and cloudiness create new purification problems. Meanwhile, holding the affected communities together takes more than a few truckloads of bottled water. It's not just the burning of the structures themselves that is the loss to the community. These institutions play roles within that community that are very critical to recovery. To weather tough times, communities need places where their members can work, learn, and get health care. They need a tax base. But experts say true resilience also requires overcoming deep-seated problems like systemic racism, poverty, health disparities, and language gaps. Passing the building code, that's almost the easy part. But then how do we address all these socially vulnerable communities and help them actually have hazard mitigation that will work? Barrett says it's time to envision a community growing alongside inevitable increasing risk. In other words, anticipating a wildfire before it occurs and integrating mitigation strategies into the development framework. Examples include special designed neighborhoods, fire-shielded infrastructure, and houses hardened with fiber cement siding and asphalt composition shingles. 
The added cost is small and the benefits are substantial. Every dollar spent on upfront wildfire mitigation within the WUI saves $4 in long-term costs. In short, experts say it's time to start treating wildfires as foregone conclusions and to begin building the kinds of communities that can coexist with them. Getting there will mean overcoming anti-regulation sentiment, coordinating across jurisdictions, large and small, and injecting sizable sums of federal and state funding. We need to start thinking about the urban within that wildland-urban interface. And right now, the inertia within us is to think that we can look at the forest and solve our way out of this. Meanwhile, Fisher says it's a mistake to focus too much on climate change. Though it is worsening wildfires, such a gigantic problem can leave people feeling powerless and mask other factors at play. A lot of communities feel disheartened and that they don't have a role to play or they can't do anything about it or they can't help themselves if it's only due to climate change. We are in this situation mainly because of our forest practices and our fire suppression practices over the last hundred years. Ultimately, Barrett and Fisher remain hopeful. They point to urban planning changes that effectively ended the ruinous infernos that once afflicted cities like San Francisco, and note more recent successes in making communities more resilient to earthquakes, floods, and tsunamis. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In business news. The embattled owner of the Phoenix Suns and Mercury announced Wednesday that he's looking for someone to buy the teams. Calls for Robert Sarver to step down came from a co-owner, a key corporate sponsor, and the NBA Players Union. Matthew Casey reports. The calls followed an investigation of Sarver, which found that he repeatedly used a racist slur, treated women unequally, and bullied staff. In a statement, Sarver says he wanted to focus on atonement during a one-year suspension he got from the NBA, but the social climate has made Sarver realize that any good he does is still outweighed by his past words and actions. Therefore, Sarver is seeking a buyer for the Suns, which Forbes magazine values at nearly $2 billion. Investigators found that Sarver's past behavior was not due to racial or gender-based hostility, but he acted as if workplace norms did not apply to him. Matthew Casey, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In Fronteras News. Compared to Arizona, mountain biking and other off-road cycling disciplines are relatively new sports in Sonora. Many of the existing trails are recently built, and new riders are hitting the available dirt all the time. But in a 30-mile corridor at the southern end of the state, growth has been particularly dynamic. From the Fronteras desk in Hermosillo, Murphy Woodhouse takes us for a ride. It's a humid late afternoon, about halfway between Navajoa and Colonial Alamos. Local mountain bike booster Fernando Santini is gearing up for a ride and rallying the troops. A sizable group assembles at the entrance to the Bachaca trail system. And off they ride in a winding single file line. At the front, Santini leads the group through the dense, low hanging trees, so tight it feels like a tunnel at times, and then up to small rises that offer sweeping panoramas of Mexico's northernmost tropical deciduous forest. It's an otherworldly landscape, with house sized columnar cactuses intermingling with the trees, whose canopies burst with the summer rains and all but vanish in the dry months. Scattered throughout the sizable trail system are ramps and jumps that send riders flying. And steep, punishing climbs. On this particular uphill, Santini says conserving your energy is the key. Or just hopping off and walking up, as writer Carlos Amaya did, something he says there's never any shame in. 
<laughs> He's beat and says there's still a lot of tough stuff on tap. Bachaca is a fairly new addition to a growing network of trail systems that flank the highway connecting Navajoa and Alamos, which itself has miles of single track. Santini rattles off some of their names. Torres, Animas, Jubileo, Nova, Oreganos, Santa Cruz. At a minimum, the corridor now has around 75 miles of regularly maintained dirt trails at all skill levels. On top of that, there's a bike park and the Cacharamba downhill area. One of the main forces behind new trail building and maintenance is NADESI, an organization that Santini founded with several others in response to the loss of a couple key trail systems several years ago. He says the name and the group's vision are one and the same, Navojoa Cycling Destination. There are many bike clubs across Sonora, but the now roughly 40 NADESI members pay monthly dues, which in turn pay a small crew to build and repair trails. If all goes well, the long-term goal for Nadesi is to turn the corridor into something like a Sonoran Moab, or Crested Butte, a magnet for riders near and far, like the well-known U.S. cycling hotspots that have served as inspiration for many here. To keep out of the evening rains after their rides, dozens of cyclists gathered in the open-air two-story restaurant at the bike park. When Ceci Osuna started 15 or so years ago, she says she was one of just a few, but the boom has swelled their ranks. Most there that evening were locals, like her, but physician Gabriel Suarez had flown all the way from Aguas Calientes in central Mexico on a cycling vacation because of what he had heard about the area. He says he had never been to Sonora, let alone Navajoa, which had never really crossed his mind before. Despite being a relatively small city, he says the exponential growth of trails here far outstrips what's going on in Aguas Calientes, a state capital of nearly one and a half million people, nine times Navajoa's size. The late summer's heat and humidity hit him hard the first day. But the next day, aided by electrolytes and a lot of water, he had exactly the sort of ride he came for. North of the border in Arizona, some also see a lot of potential for gravel riding in southern Sonora. It got on my radar when I was eight years old. That's Heidi Renz, who started the Patagonia-based cyclist menu with her husband, Sander Alt, in 2015. The two organized, fully-supported, days-long gravel cycling camps. Heidi's family regularly visited Alamos when she was growing up, but it wasn't until a 2019 Christmas gathering there that she saw its promise as a gravel destination. As with so many plans, the pandemic delayed things. But earlier this year, they started putting the pieces together for their company's first Alamos tour next spring. We scouted routes that blew our minds. Being down there and riding your bike, it's really easy to get into the middle of nowhere and really feel like you are in the middle of nowhere. If all goes well, she thinks the camp could put the region on the map for Arizona cyclists, especially those looking for a little more adventure than another trip to Moab. Murphy Woodhouse, KJZZ News, Navajoa. In education news, advocacy groups need over 100,000 signatures by September 23rd to bring school vouchers back on the ballot. Here's Lauren Gilger and Mark Brody. With us now to talk about that and other goings-on in the world of Arizona politics is Hank Stevenson, co-founder of the Arizona Agenda. Hey, Hank. Hey, Mark. So Save Our Schools was able to refer a, a similar type plan, not universal, but a similar plan uh, just a few, uh, few years ago to the ballot. Uh, where are they now? Can they do it again? 
who knows? Um, <laughs> I, I didn't think they could do it four years ago, but they put on an impressive display of volunteer power and managed to uh, get this thing through to the finish line. It looks like they're doing well so far this year, but they are being met with a lot more opposition than they were four years ago. And, and realistically, like, the you know, the, the minimum is 119,000 signatures, but they've got to darn near double that these days because of we've seen in recent years any ticky tacky error can cause hundreds or thousands of signatures to be invalidated and there will certainly be court cases uh, about the validity of these signatures so hank you mentioned the opposition and the last time save our schools did this there, there really wasn't that much of an organized opposition this year is very different yeah, we've seen as these uh, signature gatherers have been outside bookstores or grocery stores or street corners, whatever, uh, setting up their tables with their, you know, sign here petitions. Um, there's been a serious decline to sign effort. Uh, protesters showing up, some of them lawmakers who voted on this laws um, with signs in hand, urging people uh, not to sign the petition. I've even seen some street signs recently going up that say decline hmm. to sign on this hmm. thing. Um, so expect the voucher, the pro voucher side to be well funded, well organized this year if this thing uh, does actually turn in the required number of signatures. This is all happening at an interesting time, though, Hank, right? Because we've already seen some some pretty significant interest from the public in accessing these vouchers, right? Yeah, the superintendent of public instructions office has been putting out kind of weekly updates about how many uh, requests for these vouchers they've had. And it should be noted that this law was uh, put into place retroactively. So these are actually people applying for vouchers for this school year that has already started. And so far, we've seen almost 10,000 people have applied and more than 9,000 of those are under the new universal voucher law. So there's certainly a demand for these things. Hmm. And if opponents fail to get enough signatures, this will go into effect this weekend, right? Yep. Yep. Along with uh, all the other laws that were signed into effect this year that are set to uh, go into effect on the general effective date. Can't believe it's only been 90, almost 90 days since the end of the session already, has it? Is the session over? <laughs> I mean, in theory, yes. So, uh, Hank, another one of these laws uh, that, that the governor signed this year uh, is a ban on abortions after 15 weeks. But the issue has been so legally clouded uh, since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And uh, this week we could hear from a court, uh, in theory, about what, what the law might actually be here, right? Yeah, yeah. So that 15 week abortion ban would leave Arizonans with some level of access to abortion. But there's a much older law on the books um, dating back to like territorial days that would basically completely outlaw any abortion procedure at any time and make criminals out of doctors that do them. There's a real long and complicated kind of legal history behind that. But the short version is we had this on the books um, for a very long time. What was blocked by Roe versus Wade. And now Attorney General Mark Burnovich is trying to remove that block so that he can enforce this law. And it seems more than likely that he'll succeed. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, the lawyers that I talk to think that this is a pretty open and shut case. And we should find out later this week, as early as tomorrow, perhaps. All right. So obviously, you, you mentioned Mark Brnovich uh, trying to get this uh, the injunction over uh, ended. Um, he will is term limited. He's not running for reelection. How is the race to succeed him shaping up at this point? 
Yeah, we've got um, our candidates, Abe Hamaday, uh, the Republican, and Chris Mays, the Democrat. Mays is a former member of the Corporation Commission. Hamaday worked at the uh, Maricopa County Attorney's Office, though it should probably be noted that he's like 31 years old and his experience in that office or lack thereof has come under a lot of scrutiny. And I think this is probably one of Democrats' better chances to pick up a statewide office in this uh, in this election cycle. Partially because uh, Hamaday has been carrying around a lot of baggage and uh, because Mays has really picked up a lot of support from independents, old school Republican types. Uh, it looks like this will be one of the races to watch. And of course, one of the most influential offices in Arizona. That's for sure. So how will and how is abortion already kind of coming into play in this race? We've heard these candidates take very different stances. Yeah, I think abortion has been kind of the marquee issue in this race. Um, and Mesa says she will choose not to prosecute doctors if the full abortion ban becomes the law of the land. Hamaday will. And uh, Hank, what are the other issues? I mean, clearly that's a big one. Other issues that, that have become big on the campaign trail for these candidates? Everything, everything. Um, <laughs> and, and their positions are basically polar opposite on any issue you can think of. Um, police funding, accountability has been a big one. Um, vaccine mandates. They're still talking about the 2020 election, the election that will not die. Uh, you name it. They've taken a position and they are opposite positions. All right. Lots to keep our eyes on there. That is Hank Stevenson, co-founder of the Arizona Agenda. Hank, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Now from KJZZ's original productions, let's hear the next installment of the show series, Our Street. Here's co-host Lauren Gilger. Here we are profiling not just people, but neighborhoods and finding out what makes them tick. And today, I'm about to hop into a golf cart with Joe Johnston. Is how you usually get around the neighborhood? Well, you know, I like walking. One of the keys to building a vibrant community is walkability. Johnston is an engineer by training and the founder of this community we're about to explore in East Gilbert, Agritopia. He's recognizable around these parts for lots of reasons, one of which is his signature hat and big smile. Uh, alternate forms of transportation being able to be used easily and effectively, like bicycling. Golf carts, Vespas, Razors, or big wheel scooters, all those things are important. So, If you're not familiar, Agritopia is an experimental community designed to encourage agrarianism and good old-fashioned neighborliness. Johnston came up with the idea more than 20 years ago and built it on his family's farmland where he grew up. Well, we started doing the drawings for envisioning the, the, the project in 1998. So it's been, well, what is that? I, can, I think I can do the math. 24 years? It's an idyllic oasis of a place, complete with rows of crops, friendly-looking houses, shady sidewalks, and parks. It all centers around a restaurant, a coffee shop, and a bakery, and a craftsman incubator called Bar None. All of the existing buildings at the time of development are still here. So, for example, the Farm Grill was our family home, built in 1967. Uh, our offices are the original Homesteaders' house, built in 1927. And then we have Bar None, which was our grain barn built in 1950. Next year, what he calls the capstone piece of the community will be finished as well. A 320-plus unit apartment building packed with local businesses below, from restaurants and shops to salons and gyms. So all in all, he says this will be a 25-year project. Not that he minds. 
community building is a, is a patient sport. You know, you have to take time. It has to evolve organically. So it's taken a while, but it's been pleasurable and I enjoy the process. So you were an engineer. This was, as you said, your family farm. Had you always wanted to do something like this? So um, I got into placemaking in Tempe doing the coffee plantation. I really enjoyed building community in one uh, specific like leased space. And so then we had our farmland here and building community on a larger scale was something that really intrigued me. And so I've really enjoyed doing that. And the thing is, is like I'm an engineer by training, right? And so we had a clean sheet of paper to work with, which hardly anybody does. That's a huge responsibility. You only have really two tools. You can create the built environment, which is super important because there's a lot of visual cues and ways that you do things that will encourage a certain thing to happen. And then the second thing, which is harder to see, and you can't really, actually you can't see it, is the rules of the game. And so here in Agritopia, there's certain, quote, rules of the game, CCNRs, uh, and things that uh, encourage neighborliness, encourage the chance for you to meet somebody serendipitously. Uh, and so we worked on both the rules of the game and the built environment. And I did a lot of research um, because in suburbia, there's a lot of issues with like loneliness, isolation, uh, based upon things being developed as a product, like the house is the product. Yeah. Um, and having the house as the unit, the product, versus trying to do community building, that's a, it's a completely different thing. Mm -hmm. And so I started studying uh, like Home from Nowhere, Bowling Alone, some of the books about some of the situations that happen in suburbia and other parts of the community as well, and tried to see how people were, were trying to change that and how things have been done in the past and trying to adapt those to our situation. I mean, take us back like 20 years. What, what did people think of this when you started proposing this idea? Had anybody ever done anything like this or, or here like this? I don't think anybody had done anything like this here, but all of the principles we're talking about are like old principles. We're talking about like village life that's been happening for literally centuries in all places in all times whether it's a small farm town in Iowa, whether it's a village in Japan, whether it's a village in Africa, whether it's a vertical village in New York. Um, it's not rocket science. It's just, it has been done and has been done a lot. And it's just that we've kind of lost that for a while. And if we just examine the factors that make it work and try to design intentionally for it, then it, it, it works. Approached very much like an engineer. <laughs> Pretty much, yes. Well, let's go see it. Okay, sounds good. Sounds good. So we hopped into Johnston's golf cart for a tour of the neighborhood and talked about what he envisioned when he started this a quarter century ago. So here we are. So we're in this little golf cart, yes. and we're gonna we're gonna go. Let's let's yes. do it. Here it goes. I love like giving tours like this. So it, it's not a crazy idea. If you tell people. We want to design something where you can know your neighbor better, where you can have people from all walks of life on the same street, uh, where it's all ages, all stages, everything. Oh, that sounds good. That sounds like a really great idea. And so we really did not have any pushback. Although, as you know, in general, there's the idea that the other, the, the, the people that aren't here yet, we have to be cautious about them. Right. So like with apartments, for instance. But... The only pushback we really got was back in the day, uh, Gilbert had more um, large lot places 
and the idea of densifying it. Morning, Kelly. How are you? Yeah, Kelly's the head farmer here. So, there you go. Anyhow, the, some of the larger lot people thought that Agritopia and places like it where there's more houses per acre than they were used to was going to be detrimental to the community and that it was going to increase traffic and that it was going to be a burden on the school system and all that sort of thing. But obviously, as things have progressed, this is not considered something that has those bad effects. Uh, and actually, there's been more density added, more density added in other parts of the town. And there's always that pushback of like, well, we want Gilbert to be the way that it used to be. And yet we also want to have all the things that come with density. We want to have nice restaurants. We want to have a movie theater. We want to have you know, educational opportunities beyond just one public school. And uh, it just depends on your view of people and your view of, you know, whether mixing with other people is a, is a good thing or a bad thing or a scary thing or a happy thing. So. so we just drove past what? It was a citrus grove. You've got date palms here with the bags on the dates and then olive trees. Yeah, so we have, um, you know, Agritopia is Agra and Topia, right? So Agra is, is basically preserving urban agriculture because most of the times farms get just completely scraped when, when development happens. And so we wanted to, to keep agriculture. We needed to do agriculture that's good for the urban environment. So we want to think like direct-to-consumer production. And so, for example, like you're saying, we have uh, medjool dates, uh, olives, and then back further, the, uh, the citrus, the peaches. And then uh, Kelly, our head farmer, she um, grows all sorts of row crops. It's all organic. Yeah. And so um, that's, how, that's how we preserve urban agriculture. So this street, like driving down it for the first time, I don't think I've ever seen a street like this in, in the valley. I mean, like, you, this is so green. The houses don't quite look like Arizona houses. <laughs> Everything looks a little, a little closer together. Tell us about sort of the, as you said, the design that okay. does what you're trying to get it to do here. So first of all, it looks a little bit like Arizona in that the housing styles are, are actually based upon homes from central Phoenix and then design them to be very um, social in that you'll notice here that the sidewalk is very close to the house. Mm. You can see, like, if you were sitting over there and somebody was walking by, you could comfortably, obviously, wave to them, but you could also say, hello, how are you doing today? Yeah. And so kind of pulling the houses forward, all the geometry of how it's done is, like, super important to make sure that the your, your semi-public space, which is your porch, is tied to the actual public space of the sidewalk, the streets. We designed it so that you can have different sized houses on the same street. And so you can have all sorts of different price points and sizes based upon what's good for you and your family and your budget all on the same street. Well, so that was part of the idea too when you designed this. And I remember this being sort of a new idea at the time, like yeah. doing it intentionally to be not just, because we have a lot of gated communities in the sure. valley, right? Yeah. Like a lot of expensive oh, big yeah, house yeah, neighborhoods yeah, yeah. that you yeah. that you can live close to your neighbors and, and know everybody. But but it's for the upper class. This is definitely supposed oh, to yeah. be diverse. Oh yeah, it's, it's a broad, uh, it's, there's a broad range of people. Obviously prices have gotten expensive around it, which, you know, is is certainly an impediment, you know, around the valley to home ownership. But there's a broad range of people here. And I think the thing that ties them together is a desire to, you know, get to know other people, to be a part of community. And uh, I, I, the problem with a lot of places is you're anonymous, you know, where you just go in, you click your garage and 
call it a day. But here, there's intentionally, like you, you see here, do you see any block walls? Right. There's some vinyl fences, of course, just as property demarcation. And also, do you see a bunch of garages up front? I can't find one, actually. <laughs> oh, there's one. It's kind of in the back, yeah. yeah. They're all, like, tucked back in there. So it's an emphasis, a visual emphasis on walking and a de-emphasis on cars. Obviously, the car is here to stay, at least for a while. Yeah. But there's an emphasis on human scale, on, on making sure that walking and socializing is possible. I mean, so that's the trick, right? Like, because you can create the neighborhood and the place mm -hmm. in an intentional way to encourage these things. Sure. But you can't actually create community. That's up no. to people. Oh, it's totally up to people. And and obviously, there's loners here as well. You know, like, <laughs> if, you, if you want to, like, stay to yourself and you just like the look of the place and you like the tree-lined streets, there's no one telling you, hey, you got to go out and you got to go to the... <laughs> To one of the socials, like let's say there's like uh, like tiki night or there's uh, wait, and there are social nights. It sounds like yeah. Well, oh, well, well, that's part of that kind of rules of the game thing. So this has been almost 25 years, as you said, yes. uh, that you've been doing this and growing it. Now you're growing it more, and there's this large apartment complex coming in, sure. kind of on the edge of this, right? Yeah. Which you know maybe some people like and some people don't, but goes with the idea that sure. you've been talking about, about, you know, housing diversity. Yeah. What are your biggest takeaways 25 years into this kind of experiment that you started? <laughs> you know, it's actually gone pretty well. Uh, one of the things that I didn't really appreciate uh, when we started, I, I knew it was going to be important, but uh, the idea of proximity, of closeness to school, closeness to work, closeness to shopping, dining, whatever, is way more exciting and enjoyable to actually physically live it than I thought it would be. <laughs> so we're very fortunate like that our kids live here, my brothers live here. And that's not that wasn't like some sort of mandatory thing that they had to do it. <laughs> but they really You didn't give that. them the house and say here you go. <laughs> no, 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 it wasn't like that. So they um, they decided to stay here and um, do things and it's our ability to like we see our grandkids a lot and we see our kids a lot. And so the idea of proximity and like, like reducing your, your like bubbles where my work is over here and my social life is over here, my church life is here, my yeah. school life is there, yeah. and all fragmented. Um, this is my son James's house here. That's beautiful. Uh, and that's that's a big deal. So, morning. Joe Johnston, thank you so much for having me out and showing me around. Thank you. And finally, in science news. Jupiter is making its closest approach to Earth in 70 years, and Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff is offering the public the chance to view the gas giant through several of its telescopes, including the historic 24-inch Clark refractor. From our Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis reports. For several weeks surrounding Jupiter's closest opposition to Earth on September 26th, admission to Lowell will also buy visitors a glimpse of the largest planet in the solar system and some of its 80 or so known moons. The term opposition refers to when Jupiter is on the opposite side of the Earth from the Sun. Because orbits are not circular, some bring Jupiter and Earth closer together than others. Though Jupiter is in opposition every 399 days, this is the closest one to Earth since 1951. Those who miss it will have to wait more than a century to see the planet this bright again. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, 
Phoenix. This has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.